0: That you're born an Italian. If you want your life to be great, see that you're born in an Italian, and your life will be great.
1: Hey there, paisani. Welcome back to another episode of the Italian-American podcast. I'm John Viola. Very excited to spend the day with one of my favorite duos the Belle of Bensonhurst herself, Miss Rossella Arago, and the notorious P.O.B., the Italian-American Wikipedia, Mr. Patrick O'Boyle. It's been a long time since the three of us were together here on the podcast.
2: Didn't Shakespeare have something... When shall we? Was it the three witches? When shall we three meet again? Yeah,
1: there's something like that. I, yeah. Something
2: lightning. And I remember I had to I had to remember memorize that in high school, but I can't remember. No, I
1: can't tell you what it's from.
2: But when shall we three meet again? Something yes. lightning. and Yes. Somebody so, out
1: there. knows. Yes. We someone knows. But uh, needless to say, the lightning has occurred. We are together again and we are reunited on the eve of one of my all time favorite holidays. So I will say to everybody out there. Buona festa di San Giuseppe. Happy St. Joseph's Day. We are uh, the airing the day before this wonderful uh, Italian American holiday that I just absolutely adore, and I'm really really excited because next week I will be returning to New Orleans, Louisiana, one of my favorite places in the world for their annual Saint Joseph's Day parade. And you know, I, I've been doing this for probably ten years with David Greco now, and I know over the course of the years, uh, Pat, you've been able to join me a couple times. Roe, you were down there the last two that I was at, but unfortunately. Uh, this year you guys are not around. Ro you've got a book signing, I think, right Pat. You've got an event.
2: I'm and...
0: so sad. Yeah, me too. Sure. I
1: got I would love
2: to have gone with Ro to um Cleveland. Oh yeah. And I have uh Tony Shea is getting honored that night. So um I have three fantastic events on one day. If only it could have been spread out over an entire month. But
1: Yeah, Ro, you'll be in Cleveland, right?
0: I will. I tried to move it because uh, there's nothing I love more than the San Giuseppe weekend in Nola. It is like nothing else you have ever seen in Italian America. It is Southern pageantry meets Sicilian bordella. Mm. And I love every second of it. And it is just so fun from the 500 pound bowl of pasta to seeing Lena Prima sing at the Monteleone, to the parade. I almost got killed in the last parade when a tree almost <laughs> fell on my float. Oh, but, yeah. you know, it was all in good fun. Yeah, I
1: forgot about that. Last year, you uh, you were on the float with all the maids, uh, the daughters and granddaughters of all the marchers, and beautiful white dresses, everybody all prepared, looking like a royal court, and then a tree fell on you. I mean, it's, uh, it's an experience that not many of us can say we had. But I, I got to tell you, for me, this is like the best weekend of the year It's got everything. It's got all of the traditions, all of the pageantry, a massive Mardi Gras style parade, amazing food down in New Orleans, the most wonderful people. You've got the 70s kitsch of red, white and green everywhere. It's just it's really the perfect weekend for me. You're going to say I'm really whacked for this. But the
2: one thing I would like to bring to NOLA, even if it was one year on an experimental basis, And for those people, we're not talking about Noel outside of Naples. We're talking about New Orleans, Louisiana. Yeah. Because in the beginning, I'm like, why is she talking about Noel? Yeah, but I would love to bring the St. Joseph Zaplas, the Zapla de San Giuseppe to New Orleans, because that is such a Campania thing.
0: Yeah, they don't have them.
2: And that the St. Joseph Zapla zone, I would say, runs from Boston to Philly. That's where you're going to find that along the I 95 corridor. Because people from Campania, and it's our thing. I would say, especially Rhode Island. Rhode Island is like the Zeppelin capital of America. But when I say Zeppelin, I mean the St. Joseph Zeppelin. But for for the Sicilians in New Orleans, it's completely unknown.
1: Yeah, that was actually one of the things that surprised me my first time down there, that they didn't have the Zeppelin de San Giuseppe. And I remember one of my trips, you know, I I got to know the festivities through David Greco, who got to know them through the Emmy award-winning actor, Michael Badalucco, who's a proud Sicilian-American from Brooklyn. And there was another Sicilian-American from Brooklyn in the TV and movie industry down there named Joe Zolfo. Joe was the executive producer at the time of NCIS New Orleans. And one of my first years, he threw a big celebration for St. Joseph's Day with the cast and crew of the show. And he brought Zeppelis up from New York. Pat, I think you were with me, right? Yeah, you were, yeah. And and I found it really fascinating that nobody from the New Orleans crew had any idea what the Zeppoli San Giuseppe was. It was like totally foreign to this holiday that means so much to so many people down there.
2: I mean, it's understandable because it's not their thing. Yeah. That's why I think the internet has done a great service to Italian American culture because you're not going to get a, a mainline news story years ago when we were kind of tethered to, you know, three major networks and newspapers. You know, how would you get the story of Zeppelin to people who were in New Orleans? But that can happen with things like the podcast, with the internet with Facebook, you know. So I think that... um, But then again, you know, I mean, they're happy with what they have. Yeah. If we brought the was there, are we treading on what their tradition is? Is it cross-pollination? You know, I have a theory, and I had discussed this with Antonette Giudice, who's a listener. I have a theory that in the Val di Diano, because John and I also have shared roots from there, um, the pastiera is only something that came after World War II. Yeah. Before that, I think it was just a straight regatta pie. If you... Like a regatta cheesecake. If you talk to people who have really, really, really old roots from that part of Salerno, they had a an Easter pie which was regatta and no grain. And the same thing we've had this conversation with Stephanie, our producer. You know, Erpina had a regatta pie with no grain. Grain was what you had in Gazerta and the area in, in the province of Naples. And then when you moved into the Chilento, where my grandfather's side is from, you had rice that was in place of the grain, and then when you got to southern Salerno, you just had a, a regatta pie. And the reason why the regatta and the cheese are so important at Easter is because in the old days, you could need it for the entirety of Lent. But where I'm going with this is that now Bastiera, after the war, as you know, Italy got television and other things that were mass communications that spread ideas, Bastiera now is all throughout Campania. And unless you, I never know, I, I've never ever heard the conversation of that this is something new. This came after the war.
1: I'd like to ask my family about this. I'd have to ask the older family members because uh, we've always had it. It's always been a part of our Easter tradition. And my family came here long, long before the war.
2: But my thing is, it just became a cross-pollinization. You know, like, I remember my grandma. I was so fortunate. So I owed this podcast to my grandmother. Had I not lived and grown up in the same house with my grandmother, I would never, ever have had the the framework, this perspective, to add what whatever I am allowed to add to this podcast. My grandmother, when when in Jersey City, the people upstairs were A's. And they ate um spaghetti with broccoli up. And my grandmother made spaghetti and broccoli up. And my grandmother said, Oh, this was a barets dish, as if it was something very innovative. Mm-hmm. Right. Because they had never thought it was not in the the my grandma's family's repertoire of spaghetti with with broccoli up, but it's something they picked up from the people upstairs who so they were like really best friends with, very close with. So, you know, um, is this a natural cross-pollinization of Italian American culture? Us sharing the zeppola with New Orleans, or is it really us treading on toes because it's their thing? I don't know. This is, I'm not an anthropologist, right? Though I play one on the podcast. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's a deep thing. I mean, I don't know. Do, I mean, but are they interested? Are they not? Is is it interest that, that, that okays it? That's a great question. But then again, if, if like Filipinos made like, you know, like fried egg rolls, they love egg rolls. I don't know what they call them in Filipino. And, you know, do you add that to the St. Joseph's table because you have Filipinos in the parish? I mean, yeah. How does cross-pollinization work? That's all.
1: I, I don't know. Yeah.
2: I love the St. Joseph's Apo, though.
1: I know you do. I make
2: loves that St. Joseph's April. <laughs> I know you do. But then you again, know. you know, know, where my grandfather's side comes from in Salerno, throughout the whole side of the province of Salerno, for them the St. Joseph's Apola was uh a, a grafa, was the potato donut. Oh, yeah. It looks just like a donut. Oh, if you if you're out there in podcast land uh, so good, and you have not had these, John's yeah. wife's Nicole loves them. Oh, yeah. It's it looks like an American donut and it's an Italian donut. And it's a because you'd call them zapo the di or you they put the San Giuseppe and the cilento It's a potato dough mixture made into a donut and fried. And you think potatoes don't go well with sugar. They are off the charts. Am I wrong, John?
1: No, oh, no, they're fantastic. I mean, that's one of my favorites, too. And in Sicily, we have the uh, orange blossom water in there.
2: The Sicilians got to come into the conversation. Absolutely. <laughs> I couldn't. God forbid. Sicilian, God forbid we I, I know it is Sicilian the Sicilian product. But oh, um, in the Cilento, it's I don't want to say it's kind of going extinct, but it's kind of the Neapolitan, which is the the Zepo, which they know in Rhode Island and Boston and Philly which is kind of like a, a pasta pas choux. Did I say that right, Ro? Pas choux? Pas choux? Pasta choux? Pasta shoe Pasta
0: chou, yeah. Pasta chou, which dough. is a French. It's, um... it's a French dough. It's the same dough that we use for cream puffs, for eclairs. It's just, you know, when it when we do sfinshi, they're fried in a in a ball shape, kind of like in a free form. You just drop the dough into into the oil with like two spoons. And for a zephyla, you pipe it with a pastry bag and a star tip.
2: So that's kind of pasta shoe like Ro described formed around like a donut, fried, some people bake them, and then stuffed with a crema pasticcera, custard, pastry cream, whatever you want to call it, and with an amaranth cherry on top. That's considered the Neapolitan classic. That is the, the celebratory food of St. Joseph's Day, right? And you buy them, you give them to people named Joseph, or you, you, you give them to the friends and family. It's kind of like a cookie swap. But that only came to Naples in 1841. Uh, I think his name was Piñatara. Yes. Was it 1841, Raul? Is that the right year?
0: Piñatata was the, the
2: Shefaliadal guy, though. No, but I think Piñatata also was the Zepo. I might be wrong. I think it was Piñatata was also the Zepo guy. I think it was 1841 he came up with it. They know the year. And the reason they know the year is that what was happening is, and we experienced this in body, John and my brother and I, um, how in Italy, on cel- in the south of Italy, on, on feast day celebrations, there's people out in the street selling food, right? And if you go through body on December 6th, the feast of St. Nicholas, the patron, or co-patron, I should say, of body, there's people frying zeppoles all through the streets, not the stuffed Neapolitan cream ones, but just the plain ones that in New York, New York you'd have at a feast with powdered sugar. And that, that was the, the St. Joseph's Day celebration in the area around Naples. And, and what happened was in, I think, 1841, Pinatada, everybody on the street selling zeppoles, And this guy, Pinatada says, I got to do something a little different to kind of build up my business here because I'm getting slaughtered by so many that was on my street. So what he did was, because Naples, the city of Naples and France always had a very, very close connection, right? Because our royal family was always intermarrying with their royal family. Maria Carolina, uh, the sister Marie Antoinette, was married to our king. So the city of Naples had a lot of French food that would come in and French cooking techniques. So the pasta shoe was known in Naples. And this piñatata guy said, you know what? He came up with the zapo that we know today as the St. Joseph's zapo, the fried pasta choux Kind of crower donut stuff with pastry cream, and it was so good. He wiped out all the other guys on the street because everybody said, "Oh, I want, I want this new kind of zeppola. This is fantastic." And then what happened was everybody copied his, and that zeppola became the dominant zeppola in Naples for St. Joseph's Day, and the old fried dough kind of went extinct. And in the Cilento, the same thing has happened where the Neapolitan zeppola has kind of overtaken the local zeppola. And the reason why I'm going off and rambling about this is that. Is that cross pollinization? Is that one culture dominating another? Like, even in the Cilento, the Cilentano dialect of the Neapolitan is being overtaken, I think, in a lot of ways by the Neapolitan Neapolitan. But I don't know. Is that just history? I don't know. I rambled enough. I'm done.
1: No, you're not rambling. I mean, you're doing what we're supposed to do here, which is kind of explore all the ways that our culture has evolved into this Italian American culture. And, you know, St. Joseph's Day is a fantastic example in New Orleans because, you know, for all the years that I've been going down there, I have sort of focused my time with the marching club and the secular parade and the French court and all the events that we do with David and the pasta party. And the last two times I've been down there, last year was a lot of work. We were filming with Joe and Rosella was on the float and I was on another one. And so we kind of were in and out. The time before that was 2020. We landed in New Orleans and found out that everything after Friday was already canceled. So it was a really truncated version. But Pat, when you came down with me, we were able to experience the totality of it because we were able to go to some of these parishes in New Orleans and uh, across the river and Gretna and places like Metairie. We, we got to see a bunch of these unbelievable altars and really got to dig into the traditions that have evolved directly from Sicilian traditions and have been maintained unbelievably in communities, in homes, in churches, in, you know, groups, uh, civic groups, and things like that. I mean, the altars are a huge part of New Orleans' life, and the city really has taken to it, even beyond this incredible Sicilian diaspora that's there, so much so that one Sicilian-American in New Orleans actually took the time to write a book about all of these traditions. So Sandra Scalise Junot is the author of Celebrating with St. Joseph Altars, the History, Recipes, and Symbols of a New Orleans tradition. And it's a a really wonderful book I was able to get during COVID. I ordered a copy. Coincidentally, Sandra actually sent a copy to our offices that had been closed for a while. So I only found that one recently and was reminded of this amazing book. And I said to Stephanie, we have to bring this author on. It's an incredible resource with so much history in it. And so, uh, Sandra, I really, really appreciate you being here a few days before St. Joseph's Day and a holiday that I know is near and dear to both
3: of us. Well, John, I certainly appreciate the opportunity to share this sacred tradition with your podcast audiences. Uh, You know, it has been part of my life, all of my entire life, uh, because I was blessed to have two Sicilian grandmothers who taught me about food as art and love. And seeing it in action year after year has been extraordinary. But what has been even more extraordinary has been how it has morphed into other cultures uh, within our region and also around the United States. Um, It's been an extraordinary exercise. And Patrick, to answer your question about the Zeppelin, I think we have the counterpart here. On page 83 of my book, I have the recipe from the Bricado family pastry uh, store in New Orleans for this sphinja de San Giuseppe. Which basically is the same thing as his accolade. Exactly. No, the sphinge is different.
0: Well, it's the same dough. It's the same exact dough. It exactly. depends
2: on who the bakery is. Okay. This is my, because I'm a, you well. you got to understand, I, I nerd out on this stuff. I have found that it depends on what Sicilian recipe you use because the, the recipes are different in Sicily. Not everyone in Sicily uses the same thing. True. What I have found in New Jersey and New York is, if a if the baker was Sicilian, they used the sfinge dough to make their zepola. They just shaped it different. Mm-hmm. And if the bakery was Neapolitan, they used the zepola dough and made it in a ball for the Sicilians. And very few use two separate doughs. But the one thing that makes yours yours is you use ricotta inside. Yes. Your sfinge is stuffed with the ricotta. Some people put chocolate chips. They put the candida, the the candied fruit on top. They might put a little bit of ground um, nuts on top of pistachio. Or in New Jersey, there's a lot of coconut that's dyed green because the, the coconut's cheaper than the real nut. And the Neapolitan one is a straight custard, crema, pasta, cherry pastry cream, whatever you want to call it. I have found in New Jersey, there's a cross between some people will now make the Zepo with a to filling inside. Yeah. But I do think if you take them at their essence, they are two distinct doughs. But in New Jersey, you do find, I would say you find this fiend as much as you find this April
3: From kitchen to kitchen, uh, the recipes that I grew up with, and when I teach classes about the coochie I'm using the recipe that's been in my family for generations. And I actually went back to my grandmother's hometown in Cordiali, Sicily, and baked with the ladies there. The recipe was identical to what my grandmother had taught.
2: That is absolutely stupendous. That's one of the greatest things I ever heard on this podcast. Yeah. So you went back and your grandmother's recipe was exactly like they made it.
3: It was so reassuring.
2: That's fantastic.
3: And to see exactly the way they laid out the rolls of figs, it it was quite extraordinary. But when I teach the classes, and many times I'm teaching people of Sicilian heritage, and they'll always say, but my grandmother did it this way or that way or this way. And of course, from table to table, from kitchen to kitchen, the recipes are going to change it's almost like our louisiana gumball there's no one size fits all especially with these traditional cookies that have come down through the generations
1: there's nothing that says sicilian like a cuchidati cookie every family i know has a recipe mine certainly does um and by the way for our audience who doesn't know what a cuchidati is it's a fig roll cookie and i have a theory that it's actually the progenitor of the fig newton because uh, the british had such a massive presence in sicily during the napoleonic wars and even through the 1850s with the sulfur industry and the Marsala wine industry. And um, you can see they make their way into British baking with the fig roll and eventually the Garibaldi biscuit. And, you know, uh, we end up with the Fig Newton and stuff. But needless to say, they're a super Sicilian staple. They're a big part of Sicilian cuisine, but also of Sicilian approach to St. Joseph's altars. I mean, when you go throughout New Orleans, they are on every altar, be it in the home or in the churches. But they're also part of a cacophony of different symbolic foods and treats and devotional items that are left on these altars, you really can get a sense of so much diversity in history just by visiting one of these altars and learning about all the things that are on there and why they're on there and what they mean. And uh, Sandra, you know, could you give us and our audience a little sense of the history of this devotion to St. Joseph in Sicily and eventually how it made its way to New Orleans to become such a big part of New Orleans culture?
3: Well, I like to explain the the tradition of St. Joseph as it came from Sicily with the immigrants to Louisiana, as a promise, petition, and thanksgiving. These people, when they arrived, they came with nothing, but they came with many, many gifts. And those gifts they gave through their food, through their love of food. And um, so when they arrived and when they thrived, there was the thanksgiving. to thanksgiving to St. Joseph as there was in the Middle Ages for the end of the famine. There was the thanksgiving for planting us in this new soil and we're thriving here. There was the the promise that we will honor St. Joseph with this tradition year after year. And the promise is so sacred that it is generational. If If the Nona, the grandmother made that promise maybe 100 years ago, it continues in her family through the generations, it's extraordinary to watch. But there's also the element of petition. And certainly during times of war, when um, sons and husbands uh, were away at war, there was always the, the prayer to St. Joseph, the petition to uh, for protection. So that's the trilogy for me, promise, petition, thanksgiving. Um, what brought so many Sicilians to Louisiana that many people may not know is that uh, following the American Civil War, There were no workers for the cane fields and the plantation owners actually recruited young men in Sicily to work the cane fields. Um, So um, I think it was it was more than 56,000 Sicilian men came to work the cane fields and of course they would work uh, spend their two years working to pay for their passage and while they were working sun up to sundown in the cane fields They were planting their little gardens on the side, selling their vegetables to the plantation owners, and eventually became independent farmers themselves, and eventually sent for the rest of the families. Some of these people who came returned to Sicily, but the majority stayed. So that's the root of how we have so many Sicilians here in Louisiana.
1: And not just because I'm proud of my Sicilian heritage, but it's important that you point out that New Orleans and Louisiana is primarily a Sicilian-American diasporic community because the entire island of Sicily has a sincere and deep and ancient devotion to St. Joseph. That's really why the holiday is so important. Uh, It's said that St. Joseph interceded in medieval times to stop a drought, to bring back the crops. We hear of the fava bean. Was a hardy plant that could grow right away and uh, feed the population. So we still have fava beans as uh, an idea of luck and of abundance on the altars today. But until you said that, I never really thought about the fact that the tradition didn't just come over and survive because it was a tradition. It survived and grew and evolved, which we talk about on this show all the time, evolving our traditions forward. It evolved because these people encountered their own kind of famine. Maybe it wasn't you know, the famine of uh, hunger or, or drought, but they were in a new country where they didn't know anyone, they didn't know the language, they didn't know the culture, they were outsiders, and they survived and thrived, and I'm sure many of them turned to that devotion to St. Joseph in those times of need. I have never really thought of it that way.
2: Can I just add something to this? Yeah, sure. Because I'm a nerd and I nerd out. I don't want to say I'm a nerd. I was running off to Homecoming King. I'm not a nerd, but I do nerd out on these things. Um, My theory is why why Sicily has such a strong devotion to St. Joseph was because the propagator of the devotion of St. Joseph was St. Teresa of Avila. And that spread with the reform of the Carmelite Order. But at the time when Teresa of Avila Um, was reforming the Carmelite order, Sicily and southern Italy belonged to the Spanish crown. So there was a lot, a lot of cross-pollinization culturally between, and that's why the Congrega, the confraternities that are so prevalent in the south of Italy, especially around side Naples, that's something else we got from Spain. And I think it was as the Carmelite reform hit southern Italy, and especially Sicily, they are the ones that brought St. Joseph to Sicily in the south of Italy, because... March 19th, in Sorrento, March 19th is the feast of the Sorrentine Martyrs. It was only around the time of the Council of Trent that St. Joseph got on the calendar with March 19th. That's a fairly new, I mean, when you think about it, it's like 500 years old. But the Catholic Church being 2,000 years old, 500 years is kind of new. So I, I my theory is that's why it took off so much in Sicily. It was the Carmelite connection to Spain. And right around the time that St. Joseph's devotion is being split by St. Teresa of Avila, is right around the time that you had all the famine problems in Sicily, that sprung up the devotion of Saint Joseph. He was kind of like the that t- like every epoch has its saint that kind of is the saint of the time, right? The 1920s was Saint Teresa Lisieux, right? In the 50s, you had Maria Goretti, Padre Pio, maybe in in this time period. And Saint jo- Saint Joseph was the big new devotion at that time period. That's how I think this all kind of coalesced together.
3: My theory is that St. Joseph is protector of the Holy Family. You know, this Sicilian population was, uh, going back to the Middle Ages, was um, an illiterate population. They could relate to the family. So all of the St. Joseph's altars are built in three steps to honor the Holy Family, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. So St. Joseph is protector of the Holy Family, I think was their go-to prayer person The family is sacred to Sicilians, as we know. Uh, Certainly sacred to every culture. But in Sicilian culture, family is everything.
2: I disagree with you. I know I come off as a jerk, but I can't help myself. I'm like a dog that urinates on a tree. You just can't control me. But I'll tell you why I disagree with you. I think that, number one, no one loves St. Joseph like Sicilians do. You are the absolute top St. Joseph people in the entire world. But I think that your theory was afterwards. I think after St. Joseph came on the scene, then all the stuff you're saying, because yeah, absolutely, you have the the St. Joseph protected the Holy Family, protected the Christ child. If you go further back in Sicilian history, if you go back to the ancient saints that were devoted in Sicily, a lot of them are the the martyrs of the early church because Sicily had so many of them. But I don't disagree with that. I I, I really do believe it was that Carmelite shot that came out. And then as the miracles happened, then all of a sudden, the things sprung up because then after they fell in love with St. Joseph, then all the compliments came, if that makes sense.
0: Yes, but St. Joseph is like the father figure. Yeah, sure he is. And yeah. and St. Joseph's Day is also Father's Day in Italy.
2: you got to understand something. He was not even on the Roman calendar until the time of the Council of Trent. St. Joseph had no day. The, the Greeks have a, a synaxis, I think. He falls on a day around Christmas. I think maybe it's the day after Christmas or something like that or... But he he wasn't even on the Roman calendar. Devotion to St. Joseph was practically unknown, very, very unknown, until St. Teresa of Avila got on the bandwagon. She actually took a statue of St. Joseph because she was like, and I I don't want to mess up these terms, but I think she was the, I guess she'd be the abbess. She was the superior of her Carmelite convent. She went and took the statue of St. Joseph and put it on her throne as, I guess, the abbess. That was huge. So what I'm saying, Ro, is there was no March 19th before she got on that campaign. Mm. It was, was, he wasn't even on the calendar. She put him on the calendar.
1: Yeah, but I think you're saying two different things. I think it's a chicken and an egg. I think what Sandra's saying is whatever brought him there and the devotion, once he got there and the Sicilians engaged- He
2: exploded all over Sicily. No one did the man justice like Sicily did.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's Sandra's point. The devotion to St. Joseph- is understood and embraced in our idea and our understanding of the concept of family, the nuclear family, and the simplicity of it. And, you know, you and I were once having a conversation about the relationship between Italian men and their mothers, and you said something that I still think is one of the most brilliant things you ever said. You said it's no coincidence that when you observe Italian Catholicism, the crucifix has a far less central place than the recurring image of a mother and her baby son. This idea that we understand faith and the Blessed Mother and that relationship through our own and, and family being the only thing that was constant in an island and in a society that was conquered and invaded. But but family was the constant. It was the constant dynamic.
2: Yeah, nothing that tie over like a mother and son combo.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's the whole basis. That is, and that's why we can appreciate St. Joseph. Oh, yeah. He's I, I... the father that protects us. I think, and
2: Sandra, the other reason why I connected to that Renaissance period is if you look at the breads that Sicilians make for St. Joseph's Day, they are the height of the Baroque. They're Baroque all over. They're so intricate and they're beautiful and they're well designed. I don't know because I, I never ate one because who would want to bite into them because they're so
1: nicely done? Yes. It's right? true. Very true. I think, aren't
2: they shellac? Doesn't the, the Italian American Museum? I think Mariana Gatto has them shellac.
1: Yeah, they were when we were there.
2: Like they made them once and then they shellacked them for posterity. I may be wrong. She'll kill me when she hears this. But that's why I, I am on the the Baroque, because the Lenten, the penances, like all the strict rules of Lent didn't really get um, loose into the 1750s. So on the old days, you didn't eat meat any day of the week and you fasted every day and you couldn't eat till after three. There were very, very strict rules. Then it became after 12. And the two days during Lent where you got a break from the very strict fasting, well, the first day was the Annunciation, right? The the day that Mary conceives Jesus, March 25th. But the second day that came into the Catholic calendar was St. Joseph. So that's why it was a day when you had a break from the rigorous fasting of Lent.
1: Yeah, you know, you talk about the Lenten indulgence that you can enjoy the day, you can have the zeppole, the, these amazing breads. When I was growing up, we didn't uh, do the bread, and the first time I saw them in New Orleans, I think I was a, in a parish in Gretna, and I was just blown away by the amazing artistry that went into them, the symbolism, St. Joseph's saw made out of bread, the lilies made out of bread, the roses, uh, ladders. I wonder, Sandra, could you walk us through Some of the food traditions that are part of St. Joseph's Altar, what's brought there? How are they made? Why are they made? What's the symbolism?
3: Well, you know, the word I think that explains to St. Joseph's Altar best is abundanza, abundance. It is a representation of the abundance of what they experienced when they left Sicily in poverty, came here, and grew to abundance. I think the father bean is a metaphor for those Sicilians that transplanted into this new land and thrived. The father being that thrived during the, the famine. Um, so um, the the varieties of foods are astounding even to me when I go from one St. Joseph's altar to another. And what's extraordinary to me is what I see today in some of the communities, in the Asian communities that there is the Asian influence. In these uh, Hispanic communities, you see the Hispanic influence. In the African-American communities, you see their cultural uh, influence in the in not only the foods, but in the way they dress their altars. The particular um, Baroque designs that Patrick spe- uh, speaks of are um, what we call kuchigabi, which are the large lacy fig cake designs. Um, that graced the St. Joseph's altars. In the little town that my grandmother was from, Puerto Riale, the ladies there call the same thing that we make here and call cucidati, these large designs. They call squatucciati, which means lace making. And their work absolutely looks like lace. It is truly Baroque. I went to a St. Joseph altar this weekend that was prepared at a restaurant in our little community of Covington. And the breads are absolutely baroque. They are not meant to be eaten, but they are glazed and absolutely gorgeous designs um, with roses to represent the the Blessed Virgin, just so many exquisite designs, absolutely baroque. It's almost like looking at architecture, Um, amazing. What's interesting also in Sicily, in my grandmother's town, the tradition is everything that's on a St. Joseph altar is meant to be eaten. And you give to St. Joseph the best that you can prepare. And it's an artistry. It's almost a competition of artistry from family to family. But very close by in the little town of Salemi, I don't know how familiar you all are with this, but they make a non-edible bread that covers the doorways and covers their altars and even in commercial establishments they make these non-edible breads in honor of Saint Joseph. So it's two approaches to the same honoring of Saint Joseph. One is for the communal feast to be shared, Um, the other is uh, artistry in honor of Saint Joseph.
1: Wow, that is very fascinating. I had no idea about that tradition in Salemi. That really speaks to the whole concept of food as a devotional item here you know when i got down to new orleans for the first time as i've said it was with david greco he helped the marching club to create this new tradition of creating 500 pounds of pasta on the day before the parade and i noticed in every church or home or restaurant that i went to that had an altar they always included a pasta dish with breadcrumbs to represent St. Joseph's sawdust from his profession as a carpenter. Um, everywhere I've been in New Orleans, they have referred to those dishes as pasta milanese.
3: Which is actually a misnomer because it's not from Milan.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly my voice. Also
3: called pasta con la sarde, which is because it includes sardines or anchovies.
1: Yes, Um Exactly.
3: And that's the basic uh, pasta dish that's served at the St. Joseph feast. And it's always topped with the breadcrumbs, uh, which we call mudica In other dialects. They have other names for it, but it's seasoned breadcrumbs uh, as a topping.
2: Let me tell you something. The greatest gift the Sicilians ever gave the world <laughs> is the macaroni with the sardines. Yeah, that is my absolute favorite thing. I trip on that like you yeah. have no idea. You can't go wrong with pasta quesarta. I love it. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Yeah.
3: You know, I tasted it in many places in Sicily, and uh, it was different in every place that I tasted it. But it's the same basic sauce tomato gravy, which you all call sauce, um, with the um, fennel, with currants, pine nuts. So it's a tomato base. But then what makes it extraordinary is to use the fresh anise. And we're not talking about the bulb anise, the very skinny fresh anise that grows wild in Sicily. If you cut those fronds and boil it with the pasta, when you drain the pasta, the greens remain in the pasta, that's what gives it the flavor. And then you chop it with the uh, sardew sauce and then you chop that with the mojica. It's an extraordinary taste. Uh, of course, it's an acquired taste, It's interesting that following the Tupa Tupa ceremony, which means knock, knock, with three children chosen to represent Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, um, go from door to door to ask if they can come in to be fed. At the first and second, they're denied entrance. At the third, they're welcome. Come in, welcome. The feast is prepared for you. Well, when these children are seated at the table, They are given a small taste of everything on a St. Joseph's altar. And I can tell you, for my memories as a five-year-old, it was extraordinary. But for some kids at five and six and seven and eight, this is an acquired taste that they're not quite ready for. Of course. So it's interesting to see. Uh, But that tradition still continues. Another thing that's extraordinary about this tradition is that it was an oral tradition that was passed down generation after generation from the Middle Ages very little was written about the St. Joseph altar tradition until the early 20th century wow and a lot of what was written in my estimation was misinformation or was written with an outsider's viewpoint mm. and that was the reason I I was inspired to write this book because I wanted to give the insider's viewpoint I wanted to focus on the sacredness of this tradition what I got from other publications and other other books about the saint joseph tradition but that it was some sort of quirky sicilian thing and that really irritated me so i really wanted to show what i knew it to be as a sacred family tradition and to focus on what does it mean when you look at a saint joseph's altar there is so much to take in it can be overwhelming so i isolated each element on the saint joseph altar um, researched asked the questions Down at what does it mean? Where does it come from? How is it prepared? um, How does it relate to the whole St. Joseph's altar tradition? And I hope I've achieved that with this book.
1: Well, I mean, I I can certainly say from my perspective, you definitely have. I I learned a lot from the book. I learned a lot of the depth behind some of these traditions that I never really even understood, or or symbolism that I never really imparted on these things. Like I I think about the fava beans. uh, You know, you see them on the altars and people take them away each year at the end, keep them in their pocket. I, I've always done that. and I noticed in New Orleans sometimes people paint them red, white, and green, or they paint the Trinocria, the Sicilian colors, on them. I think about uh, lemons. I, I never understood the symbolism of the lemons as fertility. And um, I know women are encouraged, uh, single women, unmarried women, are encouraged to take lemons off the altar if they want to be married before next year's St. Joseph's Day. I always feel like, you know, you called it overwhelming. It is an overwhelming tradition, especially when you go to these parishes in New Orleans. There's a football field-long altar, and it it just seems like you almost can't see the end of it. It's so big, and there's hundreds of people waiting outside and hundreds of chairs and tables. Everybody is intermingled and, and dining together and in community. And that depth is so real and at and so many levels. And I think the thing that fascinated me the most about what you were saying is you mentioned other communities active around St. Joseph's Day, and it's something Pat alluded to in the beginning of the episode, which is this idea of cultural overlap. Are you talking about parishes that used to be Sicilian or Italian where other communities have moved in and sort of become part of the tradition? Or are you talking about other communities? You mentioned You know, the African-American community, the uh, Asian-American community. Are they taking this tradition on and making it their own because it's such a ubiquitous part of New Orleans' life
3: at this point? It has been adopted by other cultural groups. One of the most stunning photographs I've ever seen, and I wish I found a way to keep a copy of it. I gave classes at Zayn University in New Orleans for several years, To freshman students, we had an auditorium of 150 freshman students who knew nothing about St. Joseph's Altus to teach them how to make the Kuchidaga. It was a hands on class, it was a phenomenal experience year after year. But there was a woman who came and brought her photograph album of her St. Joseph's Altus through the years, an African American woman of New Orleans, Native New Orleanian. And her picture of her St. Joseph's Altar for 2005 was of her St. Joseph altar in the driveway because you could see off on the side of the driveway, she had no home. Wow. There was a blue tarp over the roof of a frame of a house that had been destroyed. Yes. Yet, there in her driveway was her St. Joseph altar. Wow. That to me was the most stunning thing I've ever seen. Sure. It's so deeply ingrained within each of these cultures, the African-American the Vietnamese now, um, we have a um, Hispanic African population in a little fishing town near here called Lacombe, Louisiana. Um, they put fishing baskets next to their St. Joseph's altar to symbolize this fishing community. So it's stunning to me to see how the culture of each region, uh, of each group, is manifested in this love of St. Joseph and this love of this tradition, it's extraordinary. Uh, Unexplainable to me.
2: Sandra, can I explain it to you? Because I got the answer. Please. (laughs) At the end of the day, they all want to (laughs) be Italian.
1: I guess that's true. (laughs) Yeah.
0: March is all about the women on Mediaset Italia. Spend International Women's Day on March 8th and all of Women's History Month with your favorite ladies from Italy. Friday nights belong to Michelle Imposibile and friends. Enjoy music, laughter, and fun with Michelle Hunziker and her lifelong friends. Monday through Friday, get your daily dose of Barbara D'Urso on her talk show, Pomeriggio Cinque. And on Sunday afternoons, don't miss the latest in celebrity news and pop culture on Verissimo with Silvia Tofanin. Plus, Buongiorno Mama, Series 2 on Saturday nights, starring Maria Chiara Janetta and Raul Bova. It's all on Mediaset Italian March, plus so much more. Check with your local television provider and ask about the channel today.
2: At well, the end of the day, everybody wants to be Italian. I mean, we're lucky we hit the lottery. Yeah. The day you were born, you got a lottery ticket from God that
1: you were born Italian. Yep. Ain't that the? I truth. know that, yep. you know. Yeah. And, and Pat
2: Sicilian, now at you want. I mean, I, I know. Here we go again, I mean, <laughs> the Sicilian Italian. I mean, I'm trying to keep I'm trying to be
3: a unifying. Voice I know. I'm
1: sorry. I can't help it.
3: Well, I have to I have to say I describe it as lanyard. You all know what lanyard is in Louisiana. It's a little something extra if you get a dozen. Eggs, you might get an extra one, or if you get a pound of beans, you might get uh, a quarter pound of extra beans. It's Lanyap, okay? And I have always described my Sicilian heritage as Lanyap to have two Sicilian grandmothers from two totally different Sicilian heritages. My father's family was from the region in Palermo called Piana de Greci. Which was- oh, you're an Albanian. Yes. Oh that's Ares. fantastic. You're Italian Ares. Albanian.
1: Yeah, I brought, Yes.
3: Yeah. That's my father's my father's family, Gordon, Can you speak any Albanian? No, I can understand a little of it. Uh because I heard it growing up. But interestingly, my mother's family was from just about 35 miles away in in the, in Trapani in uh, Trapanesi, um Trapanese um Puglia. But yet in New Orleans there were two distinct cultures. As teenagers in love, my father went to his father and said, I found the lady I want to marry. And he said, who is that? And my dad said, Madeline Accardo." He said, oh, no, James, you have to find a nice to brush girl. Wow. So, That's
2: Italians. It's never. Really so
3: Italians. in the 30s, in the 30s, my parents did the unthinkable. They drove to Biloxi, Mississippi and were married by the Justice of the Peace because neither family at that time would accept them. Wow. Actually, both families did. Eventually, and at the 50th wedding anniversary, my dad with his wonderful sense of humor said, and we were the couple least likely to succeed.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It sounds crazy when you think about it in today's context.
3: But the cultures were so distinct. Yeah. And that was back in the 30s. Now, it changed maybe by the 50s or 60s. But they were so distinct and separate in the 30s that it was unthinkable. For an abresh man to marry a non-abresh lady, you know. How was was the food very different between your two grandmothers? Oh, very, very different. Uh, the first time I tasted Greek food, I'm like, oh wow, this is Mama Scalisi's food because it had a lot of lemon influence. That had a, it was it was totally different from my mother's from the uh, my maternal grandmother's food. Totally different.
2: This is so fantastic. You bring this up because I've always wondered, and you can answer this question for me. Did the Italian Albanians celebrate St. Joseph the way that the non-Albanian Sicilians did? Do you think like one side of the family was more into the St. Joseph stuff than the other?
3: Well, my maternal grandmother from Podriale, um the tradition of celebrating St. Joseph's altar came with her. My dad's family were true peasants, true peasants. And they were really not what you would call religious were not middle class my mother's family was more middle class um when my dad asked the question for of his father uh papa i want to go back to Sicily. i want to see the home that you lived in my grandfather scalisi went silent and then he said to my dad james there was no home we lived in a cave wow lived in a cave yeah in Piana de creche now my mother's family I think were more middle class because they sold property in Sicily and came here and started a business. But not so with the Scalises. They were true, true peasants. So I have a mix of two cultures, two totally distinct cultures. But the St. Joseph altar tradition, as I learned it, came from my maternal grandmother.
2: That makes a lot of sense. There's another theory I have. A lot of Ita- Abare Italian Albanians a lot of people say, well, my family wasn't that religious for the Italian Albanians because mm-hmm. they're not Roman Catholics. They're Greek Catholics. Exactly. And when they came to the United States, the Irish bishops made no provision for them. And they had it. I think Sacred Heart was your church in New Orleans. was supposed to be a Greek Catholic church. They had one in Little Italy in Manhattan for the Italian Albanians, the Sicilian Italian Albanians, Our Lady of Grace. But Cardinal Spellman didn't want it there. Once the priest died, he wouldn't put another one in. For people who don't know, Italian Albanians, they are not Roman Catholics, they're Greek Catholics, they're just as Catholic Catholic as the Pope, but they have their own right, their own tradition, which is the same as uh, liturgically as the Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox, or the Byzantine Catholics. And they made no provision for them. So when they came to America, a lot of the Italian Albanians didn't speak Italian, or they didn't speak the local language, they didn't speak Sicilian, they spoke Albanian, which was like 16th century Albanian, like from the time of Shakespeare. And they were used to the liturgy was in Greek. Their mass was in Greek. And they came here. And then being thrown in a Roman church, they were completely fish out of water. They didn't understand what was going on. The traditions were different. And that's why we, we lost a lot of them.
3: Well, Patrick, in New Orleans, there were enough Albanian heritage people that they formed their own community. They did not form a church. And they felt isolated within the Catholic church. Um, the masses were
2: in Latin. They didn't speak Latin. It was Latin. The, uh, it was, I could say this, because I was Irish off the boat. It was those Irish bishops gave them absolutely not a break. And that's, I don't know, you know, Sandra, I, you you realize now that I'm kind of wacky now that you've been on the podcast no, for an hour. I've
3: been listening to your podcast. I'm I'll happy.
2: have you? Thank you very much. <laughs> I want to get a regular Greek Catholic Byzantine liturgy for the Italian Albanians in New Orleans. It may not be every Sunday. It may only be on special occasions. But you have such a beautiful, beautiful tradition that was not respected, that was right. trampled on, that was put aside. And there has to be justice. Justice has to be done.
3: There is a wonderful organization of the Contessa and Tolina Society, and they have a beautiful tomb in Metairie Cemetery and have ceremonies each year on All Saints Day um, in the Abresh language. Uh, Wow. Ordinary. Um, so, so the the community has banded together, not in the way that you would like with an established church, but they are younger generations are now embracing that culture. When in my generation it was considered an other, and and in fact, so much so in my dad's generation that they were totally isolated except within their little small community. But it's changing. It's changing. And and there's an embracing by younger people to learn about that culture. But it's a little known fact among Sicilians that there are these. And, and and many years ago, people said, well, it's a different dialect. No, it's not a different dialect. It is an absolutely different language. So big difference.
1: Yeah, that's an understatement, right? I mean, I, it reminds me of I was just the other day, I was in a deli near my house. I, I went in to this little deli that I had never seen. It was called San Fratello. The proprietor was Sicilian. I saw this big Sicilian map, one of those uh, kitchen towel maps in his in his store. And we started talking about being Sicilian. It ends up my father-in-law actually is friends with his dad. And we kind of hit it off, and we started talking about you know the language and culture of Sicily. And he said, well, I don't speak Sicilian. I thought he meant I no longer speak Sicilian. He said, no, I, I speak the dialect of San Fratello, which is one of the last villages in Sicily that still speaks a, a, a mix of French and Italian and Provencal and Lombard really that came down with the Normans and this guy so this guy speaking a language that's the last remnant of the Norman invasion of southern Italy and Sicily which was like the 1030s through the 1060s and here's this wonderful little isolated culture and it just to me it always speaks to the amazing diversity throughout Italy really you know the linguistic diversity the culinary diversity. And uh, I think it's replicable here. I think that as we started this episode an hour ago with the conversation about whether or not we should be bringing, you know, Campania Zeppelis down to Sicilian New Orleans, uh, it, it, everybody has such a unique and diverse experience with their Italian American heritage. Where you came from in Italy, in this case Sicily, where you arrived, when you arrived, you know, you said uh, something that you in New Orleans would call gravy, we would call sauce. No, you but, would call sauce. Well, you know,
2: I am with you, Sandra. I say yeah, gravy, we, you, and they beat me up. No a lot of Jersey right. have been here a long time we say well, yeah. too. You know, they,
1: they looked
2: down on heaven me heaven because the sauce the, the New York people Jersey were like second class citizens. But yes, I think
1: <laughs> But no, but but I think a lot of that has to do with when your family came here and like that's my point is there's such a diverse experience of the Italian American life and you know, Pat's point about his, his Campania grandmother learning uh, pasta with broccoli, Rob from the barre's neighbors and I think the beauty of the whole platform that we have here is to be able to share these things and to have interviews like this with people who have such diverse experiences. And uh, I guess the, the big takeaway for me is go out and get the book. You'll really enjoy it, but also make your way down to new Orleans around these weeks. If obviously this year it'll be a little bit late, but next year, if you are planning a family vacation or if you're young and on your own and you want to go to a great city, Go to New Orleans, do it around St. Joseph's Day, do it when you can experience the parade, but also do it when you can have the opportunity to visit these parishes, visit these institutions, visit even some of these homes that people open up. I, I think it's unlike anything I've ever done, and it's become such a hard pin on my calendar every year, must-visit every year, that I feel like I'm part of the community at this point Um and I I just highly recommend it to everybody. So Sandra, first and foremost, thank you for being here. But secondly, thank you for writing the book, because it's a great resource, like you said, in a field that doesn't particularly have a lot of literature on this amazing tradition that is still incredibly vibrant in and around New Orleans and Louisiana. So uh, I think it'll be a book that'll be referenced for many years to come, because I don't think the St. Joseph's Tables are going anywhere.
2: Can I say something? When I went to New Orleans with John, the one time I was there for the St. Joseph's table, they are the nicest, friendliest, humblest, most welcoming, you could salt of the earth people. You could not ask for nicer people. We never got a warmer welcome than we got in New Orleans. And it was a it was a spectacular weekend. And to everybody out there, buy this book. But don't buy one, buy multiple. Thank you. Buy it for you. <laughs> buy it for your Sicilian relatives. Buy it for your your Irish mother-in-law who makes fun of you, give it to her for Mother's Day as a one-up, give it away as Christmas gifts. We have to support the people like Sandra who are going out there to preserve our heritage. She'll never get back on this book the amount of money she put out. If she sold a million copies, she's never going to get the money back, the time, the effort, the sweat. It was a labor of love, but we cannot allow these people to roll alone. We got to come out and
3: support them. Thank you, Patrick. And thank you both for having me here. Uh, It's been my joy to share this with you. There's so much more that I would love to be able to share with you. One quick little thought. When you come to New Orleans and you go to that big pasta dish and everything is red, white, and green, have to say, if you go back to the early St. Joseph's soldiers that were in New Orleans, and I have photographs of them, or if you go to Sicily today, or if you go to my cousin, St. Joseph's altar in Australia, you never see red, white, and green on the altar. No. It's all done in elegant white, elegant linens, beautiful. That red, white, and green Italian-American pride came in maybe in the 60s. And when I see fava beans painted in red, white, and green, oh, my God, my insides just sort of crumble. Um, And that wonderful parade, my son gets out there and he puts on the red, white and green beads and and loves every minute of it. But that's not what the real original St. Joseph's Altars were. They were so elegant. So it's part of the change. I know as a tradition, it has to be allowed to grow and change. But I know what it was from the very beginning. I have pictures from the very beginning. altars. And I've compared it with what's going on in Sicily today and what's going on in Australia with my cousins there. So, you know, <laughs> just my little thought.
0: I think that there's room to appreciate both versions of St. Joseph's Day. And uh, and there, there are two different ways to celebrate. There's two distinct styles. Exactly. And I mean, exactly. I'm, I'm all for, you know, uh, documenting and preserving you know, where things came from, because I really believe that you'll never know who you are if you don't know where you came from or who you came from. And and it's about finding the source of these traditions and and making sure people understand. But, you know, a little red, white and green never killed nobody. And, uh, (laughs) And I and I like the the kitchen, the abundance, the extra abundance and the fava beans as much as anybody. But I think the work that you do is very important. I think the the book is fabulous. And um, you. if you enjoy today's version of St. Joseph's Day, today's evolution of St. Joseph's Day, I think you do yourself a favor and pick up this book and learn about the origins of this amazing holiday. Uh, St. Joseph's Day is one of my favorite days of the year as a, as a proud first-generation Italian American. I look forward to it every year. I'm so sad I'm missing this year's because nobody told me that uh, that we share with the Irish every other year, that we switch off.
3: I that. Is that what they do? Well, Patrick, I know you, you may appreciate this, but I told my pastor when my son was St. Joseph, or the St. Joseph, in his primary school, Everything that year was in green and white because of St. Patrick's celebration. I told my pastor, you know, Father Joe, St. Patrick was really a patrician Roman. Absolutely correct. That is true. <laughs> oh boy, there we
2: go. That is a, he was
3: a Roman, British Roman. Correct. So, so Father Joe's homily on St. Joseph's day was. Now, I've been reminded that St. Patrick was really a patrician Roman, but you know, St. Joseph was really Jewish. So we get to the table and my son is St. Joseph. And I went over to Father Joe and I said, so Father Joe, since St. Joseph is really Jewish and my son St. Joseph this year, does that make me a Jewish mother? And he said, oh, Sandra, you qualify.
1: That's cute. That's pretty good. That's a
2: cute story. We're going over Sandra's house. Roe, we'll go over there. When we're back in New Orleans, we're coming over for the pasta kusarte. Just be prepared. Absolutely. We're going to knock on a- the door.
3: My kitchen is always open. You I'm are-
2: looking forward to that. Nothing I like more than, better than eating. John can attest to that.
1: Uh, you sure can, my friend. You are a champion, and there's a lot of great food and treats to enjoy on St. Joseph's Day. So from all of us at the Italian American Podcast, I want to wish everybody a buona festa di San Giuseppe. Happy St. Joseph's Day. When the holiday comes on Sunday, I hope you'll be wearing red. You know, put an altar in your house. Bring your family together. Share a meal. Revive this devotion if it's one that's been dormant in your family. Take it on if it's one that wasn't always in your family, because it is, as Rose said, It is. I think it's the best Italian-American holiday once you get into it. I really do. And and it's sort of, um, it's limited in, in its scope in certain places, but once you find this devotion, it's really just so beautiful. And, you know, to Sandra, to your point, it's got the 70s mix and the parade and the red, white, and green Italian pride movement, but it's got ancient, ancient medieval roots that have really come through time right here to the United States of America. And it's just something everybody can enjoy some portion of. So... I couldn't be happier to be a part of the New Orleans tradition and I will be down there next week for the parade. And so hopefully I'll see you Sandra and some of our audience out there at the parade in new Orleans and more important than anything else, have a very happy, healthy and blessed St. Joseph's day. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week.
2: This is the first Sicilian song to come out of my gazoo. Shooting.
0: It's the first one.